Good morning. Um, my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks, and we are continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Mark. And so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, and if you could please stand with me for the reading of God's word out of respect for God's word. So this is Mark 2, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming who can forgive sins, but God alone. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So I'm gonna bring up a picture. There should be, we'll do the first picture. This is my daughter, Summer. And that's a 25-year-old version of, of me. <laughs> um, so that's my, uh, that's my daughter, Summer. And she, isn't she cute, little, beautiful angel, right? Show the next picture. Another great picture, right? Great, great picture of our daughter, Summer, who is 17 now. Does anybody else feel old? Like, you guys all remember when she looked like this. She's 17 now. Um, so I'm, I'm, I've, I've told a few people that she's 17, and some people are like, are you kidding me? I feel so old. Imagine being the dad of a 17-year-old. That's... Uh, but when she was four or five, about this, about this age here, when she was four or five, uh, Summer has always been the easiest, happiest kid ever. Uh, like when we, we had her uh, and we would be out in public, people would compliment us as parents and be like, oh my goodness, your daughter's so well-behaved. She's great. She's just this angel. And we'd be like, I know, behold, look, our, our angel, like we must have done something right. By the way, this story takes a turn. So I have her permission to share this uh, today, just so you know. Um, I can actually remember one occasion. I mean, this is how angelic our daughter was. At one occasion, she's about four years old and on her own, she decides to drag a chair over next to the sink after dinner. And she gets up on the chair and she starts washing the dishes while she's like bebopping to like some praise and worship music or something. And so we're just sitting there like looking at our daughter, washing dishes, like singing to praise, singing along to praise music. And it's like, wow, oh, like the angels, you know, <laughs> our beautiful daughter, behold our beautiful daughter. Um, but sometimes people 
behave in ways that shock you, confuse you, maybe even anger you, right? You ever, you ever have an experience like that uh, where you think you know somebody and then they do something that feels out of character, your expectations aren't met. Well, uh, we had uh, an event that occurred that did that for our, our daughter, Summer, our beautiful angel. Uh, we were um, at home and we had some family coming over to visit and um, with her cousin, her co- cousin was coming over to visit. And so Summer's just sitting there, our little angel's just sitting there watching television, watching some cartoons on TV. And her cousin's over at the house now, they had just come over and he had walked between her and the TV. And, um, and that annoyed her. And uh, in that moment, uh, she became demon-possessed or something. And she says to Matthew, get out of my way. And she grabs him by the back of his head and then face plants him into the corner of our coffee table. And he's got this massive like goose egg on his head. Um, And we are in shock we're confused, right? We're angered. Uh, I had all sorts of questions, like, do I need to hire an exorcist? Am I safe in my own home? Um, we, we laugh about it now, but in that moment, right, it's like your beautiful angel just grabs somebody's head and like violently, you know, face plants them. It was crazy. Um, in fact, I've got another picture. This picture here, you could see the lump on poor Matthew's head. This was taken like a week or two after she had done that. So there she is, little angel hugging her cousin that she had violently assaulted. <laughs> and in today's text, we see Jesus act in a way that, that gives people that same kind of reaction that same visceral, like shock, shock, confusion, even anger. Um, In chapter one, we see Jesus uh, going out and and, and, um, establishing his ministry. And really the only pushback he gets is from Satan and the demons, right? That's all of chapter one. We We see the devil test Jesus and we see Jesus going into the synagogues and casting out demons. And so uh, up to this point in chapter two, whenever Jesus spoke and acted, everybody's happy. But suddenly there's this shift in Mark chapter two, where from this point on, Jesus begins to act in a way that shocks, confuses, and angers. And in fact, Mark goes out of his way um, to show that Jesus encounters this resistance as he behaves in, in these confusing ways. And what's interesting is Mark kind of highlights that this, uh, the, the people that are shocked and confused and angered aren't just the enemies of Jesus. It's not just the enemies of Jesus. It's his family, it's his parents, it's his own disciples, it's the religious teachers, it's basically everyone. Um, Mark 2, verse 16, we've got some verses I'll hit real quick. Mark 2, verse 16, It's like, okay, well, if this guy is who he says he is, if this is the holy Messiah, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or Mark 2, 24, the Pharisees said to him, why are they, the disciples, doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus, you and your disciples are a bunch of rule breakers. This doesn't make sense. Mark 3, 21, uh, when his family heard about this, they went to take control of them for they said, he is out of his mind. Even his own family is like, oh my goodness, Jesus is having a mental breakdown. He's out of his mind. 
Mark 3.22, teachers of the law uh, say to him, well, he's not out of his mind, he's possessed. He's demon-possessed. And then in Mark 8, verse 33, Jesus had just gotten done commending uh, the apostle Peter and saying, hey, good job, good job. The spirit is doing a work in your heart. And then like literally two minutes later, he's turning to him saying, get behind me, Satan. It's like, what's going on, Jesus? You're behaving in this confusing, surprising, unpredictable, sometimes even offensive way. And here's the thing. I challenge you to do this. If you go into the gospels, you'll find that there wasn't anyone ever who met Jesus, even his own parents, anyone who at some point wasn't shocked, confused, or even angered by Jesus. Everyone who experienced Jesus experienced a Jesus that was shocking, confusing, or even angry, like made us angry made them angry. And in our naivety, I think that a lot of times we look at those passages or look at a passage like this and we kind of wag our heads and say, if I was there, I would have got it. I would have understood. Jesus wouldn't have been confusing to me, right? Or at least we believe that the Jesus we encounter now won't confuse us or cause us moments of doubt or anger or confusion. Here's the thing. If If Jesus has never been confusing to you or shocking to you, or maybe you've never doubted or never been angry with him, you've always understood Jesus 100%, you've always followed him 100%, you've agreed with Jesus 100%, if that's your posture, then I would submit to you that you're probably not following Jesus, you're following a false Jesus that you've kind of constructed in your own mind and you've conflated that with the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus shocking, confusing, and sometimes even angering. And if you still don't think you've ever disagreed with Jesus, consider this. Every time we sin, we are in effect saying to Jesus, I know that this is what you would have me do, but actually here's what I'm gonna do instead. All right, so if our sin is not an expression of disagreement with with Jesus, then I don't know what is. So all of us in this room have also encountered a Jesus that we wrestle with, sometimes pushes back on us in a way that we don't like, a Jesus that's shocking, confusing. Maybe even we, get, we doubt or get angry. And what I want us to see here in this text today is that there is grace for that. Jesus has a posture of grace towards um, those that, have, that, that are in that space. In fact, it's exactly the kind of person Jesus has come to deal with and to heal. So let's look a little bit more uh, at the text. Verse uh, two of chapter two, it says, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So Jesus is preaching out of his house. He's preaching out of the house. It says he's preaching the word to them. He's teaching out of his house. Jesus doesn't have a large house, okay? But a large crowd has gathered and, and uh, to the point of where they're overflowing out of the door. So people are just, the crowd has surrounded his house and they're, and they're listening. And four men arrive at the scene and they're carrying a man on a stretcher. And the text calls him a paralytic. He's paralyzed. And based on the fact that it required four men and not two, and that it says that he's on a bed or stretcher, 
Um, and that it doesn't refer to him as being lame. It says that he's, he's a paralytic. The, the textual implication here is that this man is a quadriplegic. Now, whether he was born that way, born without the use of his hands and legs, whether he was born that way or whether he suffered a traumatic injury, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. But it, it's basically telling us that this man is in a really bad place. He's in a lot of suffering. Um, at least if he had just been lame, and he had had use of his hands, he could still sort of provide for himself by working with his hands. But the fact that he has not the use of his hands or his legs, he's essentially doomed to poverty. He's, he's doomed to the mercy uh, that other people will take on him. There's a kind of desperation that is surely in the heart of this guy, right? He has no doubt heard that there's this great healer that's walking around, that's been healing people. He hears about this. And so there's this great desperation that sets in for him. And we see that desperation play out in verse four. It says in verse four, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So when they get there in their desperation, <laughs> They, they damage Jesus's house. They're like, oh, hey, we're gonna have to you know, dig a hole through this roof here, cut a hole and lower this guy down. So, I mean, just put yourself in that headspace for a moment. Here you are now. You're this guy who, whether through an accident or through all your life, you've been not had the use of your arms and legs. There's a kind of desperation that you have. And now your friends have lowered you down and you're laying there before the man who's, the, who's got this reputation as a great healer. This man can heal. And now the moment has come. Finally, whether you've been waiting all your life or, or who knows how long this guy's been waiting, now is the moment when he is going to be healed. And what happens in verse five? It says, when Jesus saw their faith, what faith? Faith that he was the Messiah? No, just just. They had a, a kind of generic faith that this guy must have been from God, that he was a healer and he must be able to heal. They had faith that Jesus could heal this man with his disability. And Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're this man, <laughs> I cannot imagine a more confusing answer from Jesus. I I. I like, he does, you know, you'd be like going to the doctor for surgery and the doctor's like, hey, I'm gonna pray over you. We're gonna pray that Jesus heals your soul and then we're gonna send you on home. It's like, what? No, that's not what I came here for. I came here for, for healing. Jesus, I came here for healing. I, I, I don't know who you are or why you're saying to forgive, uh, you forgive my sins. Like, I don't know what I did against you, Jesus. You know, I appreciate that. But what I really came here for was something else. And here's the thing about Jesus. Is, is Jesus just slow? Does Jesus just not know why this guy is here? No, of course. Jesus knows that this man has come to be healed. So why would Jesus knowingly, willfully be confusing and even risk offending this man? And Jesus is communicating this to the man and I, th I think to us as well. He's saying, you are right that I'm the healer. 
you're right that I'm the healer. But your greatest need is actually not that I heal your body. Your greatest need is that I heal your soul. That's what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus is willing to risk being confusing, shocking, or even offensive in order to address this man's ultimate need. And on verse six and seven, it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the teachers of the law, these scribes, um, they hear Jesus proclaim a kind of uh, all-encompassing forgiveness over this man's sins. And they rightly understand, their theology is right. Like, yeah, God, God is the only one who can do that. But they say, why does this man, right? Like, this guy isn't God, this guy's man. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. This guy isn't God. He's blaspheming then because he's putting himself on equal footing with God. They don't believe it to be true. So they accuse him, uh, in their, at least in their minds, of blasphemy. So Jesus kind of confronts their lack of belief regarding his position and authority as God, right? They all have faith that Jesus can heal. They've, they've seen him heal. He's got a reputation that precedes him. They, they know that he can heal, um, and so he asks them then in verse nine, which is easier, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take your bed, take up your bed and walk, right? Not what is easier to do, what is easier to say? What is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. That's easier to say. Because if you say to someone you're healed, well, that requires a kind of instantaneous verification and proof. But anybody could just say, you know, I'm God and I forgive you. And so he says in verse 10, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So here's the truth in all of this, the, the shocking, uh, confusing truth of Jesus. The paralyzed man thought that the main problem in his life was that he was paralyzed. That's what he thought. If he could just be healed of that, then he would be saved. And when he encounters Jesus, the healer, he's forced to realize that his greatest need in life is not actually to have his body healed. His greatest need uh, is for Jesus to forgive him and to heal his soul. And again, Jesus risks being cold or confusing uh, in this. And here's the reality. A lot of us, we all come in here today a lot like this guy a lot like this guy. Every single one of us come in here today thinking that we know what the real problem of our life is. Everybody that came in here today, you've got something that's distracting you, something that's weighing down on you, suffering or brokenness or something that you come in here with and you think that's the main problem of my life, right? But the main problem, according to, to Jesus here, the main problem isn't our suffering, it's our sin. Even saying that out loud feels, by the way, cold and calloused, um, confusing, offensive. Like even saying that out loud just feels so cold. But Jesus says, I love you more than to just give you what you want. I love you enough to sometimes 
give you what you actually need. We do this with our kids, by the way, all the time, right? We, we don't always give um, our kids exactly what they want. We, give, we dictate to them, like, this is what you're going to do, or this is what you're going to eat, or this is how it's going to work, because this is what you need, regardless of what your wants are. Um, so I've, I've had conversations like this with my uh, five-year-old. Um, I'll, I'll say to him, um, hey, it's bedtime. And then he'll say, well, uh, but I want to watch Disney+. Plus." And I'll say, well, no, it's bedtime. You have to go to bed now because uh, tomorrow you have school and we want you to function well at school. We won't, don't want you to be sleepy. And then he'll say something like, well, I don't want to. I don't want to go to school tomorrow. I just want to watch Disney. I don't want to go to school. And so we'll say, well, I thank you for expressing that desire, but um, tomorrow you have to go to school and so you have to go to bed right now. And he's even gone so far as to say, I hate you. You ever have, ever have, ever say that uh, to your parents or have your kids say that to you? I hate you. Um, now, in that moment, would I be a good parent if I said, oh, you know, I can tell that this really bothers you. That this is something you really want. And um, so you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and give you what you want. You can go ahead and watch Disney tonight and just blow off school. If you don't wanna go to school, you just let me know when you wanna go to school. Uh, I'm, I'm here to give you what you want. And so, um, and, and, and I can really tell that this bothers you and you really hate me and, are, and feel like I'm being cruel to you. So um, I wanna give you what you want. Would I be a good parent if I did that? No, right? The, the, no. Um, I love him enough to give him what he needs. And so I say, cool story, bro. Like <laughs> I'm taking away your tablet and now it's bedtime, right? Even when I know that he can only interpret that as me being cruel. And so like children, well, we, we do this with God. Like children, we go to God with the things that we want or we go to God with our suffering as we should, as we should. We sh it's not that we shouldn't have those conversations with God, we should. Um, like it's, it's so interesting to me, um, I put, the, put this uh, uh, picture up on Kyle of, um, of uh, the, the Damar Hamlin. It's so interesting to me, this here, so interesting to me that like a week or two ago, a nation, tens of thousands, if not a million drunk football fans got on their knees and prayed for a man whose heart had stopped on the field. People were praying on live ESPN television. I'm not even making that up. Um, like it was literally like, hey, we're gonna pray that this guy, you know, is okay. All right, we're done praying. We're gonna go to a Budweiser commercial and we'll be right back, you know? It's like, like, like that was a real thing. This is a real thing. It's so fascinating to me that when something bad happens in our life, our instinct is to do exactly what these people did. Go to Jesus, go to the healer, right? That's something that, that is just kind of embedded, I think, in all of our hearts. Thousands of people went to Jesus, the healer, on behalf of Damar Hamlin, as we should, rightly so. Jesus commends the faith, that kind of faith here in this uh, text, right? Jesus doesn't turn away from them and he doesn't turn away from us, but Jesus wants to go so much deeper. He wants to go so much deeper. What he's essentially saying is, listen, if I have, if you're coming to me and recognizing that I have the authority and the power to heal 
a paralyzed man? Or America, if you're coming to me and you recognize that I have the power and authority to heal Damar Hamlin, if I've got that power and authority, then I've also got power and authority and dominion over your heart and your sins and your soul. Like I've got, I've, if, if, if you can't compartmentalize me, is kind of what Jesus is saying. Like I am the healer, but I'm not just here to heal on a surface physical level. I'm here, heal, here to heal you in a comprehensive way from the inside out, all of you. That is what Jesus is, is, I think, revealing to them and revealing to us. So, okay, so, so Jesus is our healer and we're supposed to, to um, let our souls be healed by Jesus. How do we do that? Jesus told us in the last chapter, in Mark 1, verse 15, he just says, repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus says. You wanna be healed? You wanna, you wanna know how, how this works? Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, repent is this idea of turning away, turning away from our sin, and then putting our trust in the good news of the gospel, not putting our trust in our works or how spiritual we are, right? The gospel, the good news is simply that Jesus died for us, that our sins were put on him, that he paid uh, the penalty for that. And that I in and of myself can do nothing, but rather I have to put stock fully in what Christ has done for me, right? Scripture tells us that it's not of works, right? But that it's the free gift of God. That's, we repent and believe the gospel. That is how we um, enter into this healing. And then as a Christian, when we put our, our belief, our confidence in that kind of healing, in Jesus healing and saving us from our sin, we finally begin to have a relationship with Jesus that isn't predicated on our performance. Um, and we will then also enter into this place where we begin to understand that the greatest healing that Jesus does for us is to mend our broken relationship with him. But that's ultimately, as you come in here today, there's all kinds of healings that you should be taking to Jesus and that's good. We should be taking all of our suffering, all of our needs to him. And we bring all of that, all of that in here with us. But Jesus wants to go so much deeper with us. And at some point, all of us have to take inventory of our hearts and find out if the agenda that we have for uh, Jesus's healing is actually his agenda too. Um, so that's the question that, um, that we kind of need to end on. Why are you here? <laughs> um, why did you come today? What, what do you want from Jesus? What kind of healing did you come in here um, desiring today? Is, is Jesus the God that gives us health, wealth, and happiness? That's a very American consumeristic version of Jesus. I think that a lot of us would prefer, but are you okay with a Jesus that heals you according to his agenda and not your own? So those are the questions that I wanna leave you with today. We have a weekly reminder of what it cost Jesus to pay for our sins. This weekly reminder is called communion in the Lord's Supper. It's a um, weekly reminder that ultimately we are here to remember Jesus's body, which was broken for us. And we're here to remember with the cup, his blood shed for us. 
And so in a moment, the band's gonna come and play and then communion is gonna be served. And it's a reminder that, um, it's a reminder that Jesus' sacrifice for me heals me and not anything that I do. It's a reminder, um, this is why Jesus came. So if you're a Christian here today, uh, you don't have to be a member of our church or anything like that. But if you're a Christian and your confession is that Jesus is Lord, then you're welcome to come forward here in a moment um, when communion is served and take a piece of the bread. and. Drink.